The Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging presents The Art of Aging, information and tips on how to experience life more abundantly as we age. Our hosts are John King and Reverend Beth Long Higgins, Executive Director of the Ruth Frost Parker Center in Marion, Ohio, an organization affiliated with the United Church of Christ. LGBT seniors are going back into the closet because that fear is, is real. We've heard about homemakers going in, taking out a Bible and having the elder pray and asking for forgiveness. And to be cured. It's not too late for you to be cured of this. They go back in the closet. She might mistreat me or abuse me. And it turned out he was afraid of the orderlies. He was afraid of all these people that would really harass him or abuse him. And he was also afraid of the other seniors that were at, at this home. So he did not want to be seen associating with these gay people coming in here. It terrified him. So they stopped going. And you know, eventually they heard you know, months and months later that he had passed away. He passed away alone. What you have just heard are excerpts from the film Gen Silent, which was produced and directed by Stu Maddox. You know, many straight people may not realize that being part of the LGBT community leads to unique fears of growing old. I got to know Stu a couple of years ago because we used this documentary to help educate our staff at United Church Homes. And I've been able to share Gen Silent in several congregations to help raise awareness about the unique aging challenges for those who are LGBT. Hi, Stu. Let's start by hearing the story of why you chose this topic. Ten years ago, I was looking for examples of successful aging as an LGBT person since I am aging and I also identify as part of that community. And I really wasn't seeing good examples of that out there. I wasn't really seeing any examples of it actually, good or bad. And it wasn't that they weren't out there, it's just that they were much harder to find than say your grandparents, your straight counterparts would be. So often we don't have a lot of role models because we're estranged from families or people who might act as those role models as we age, our grandparents, our parents and so on. And so as I looked into why it was much harder to find older LGBT people. I was really uh, struck by discovering that it was because they were growing increasingly afraid to be them, be their authentic selves. So uh, that was something that I kind of felt compelled to do something about with my powers of filmmaking. That's kind of my thing. And this seemed like a really important thing for selfish reasons as well as for altruistic ones. Yeah, it was interesting because some of your characters have been actively working within the gay rights movement since it began. But they are also, at least at the time of the film, facing some fears about uh, having to get advanced care and how they might be treated. Yeah, there's the kind of this added layer, isn't there? I just I not only need to find a place that I can afford to age successfully if I have to leave my home, I have to find a place that is going to allow me to age as myself. Other people in the aging residence or wherever that might be may not be as accepting of me. And that's as big a challenge as the, the care workers, is the, those fellow residents. Just like everything uh, with communities who have been historically underrepresented, there's kind of a added layer of having to navigate success in so many different areas, and aging is one of them. Yeah, one story you have Lawrence and Alexander Lawrence cared for Alexander for many years at home, and then he had to move him to a facility. 
and then he had to change the facility because he wasn't being treated respectfully. Sometimes it's not so much a disrespect or, or active condemnation or abuse or anything so serious. It's more of just a not feeling comfortable to say, hold your partner's hand. Activities of daily living require somebody who is willing to do a lot of very personal things for you. The way he told the story of how he feels comfortable massaging his hand now, whereas before he felt like he had to pretend like he was just putting lotion on it, really brought that home. Yeah, and as a filmmaker, I have to say that when you find a quote that summarizes the entire story so well, it's very moving, actually, because you try to tell a story in so many different ways, but when a person says it so succinctly, it's really been a thing that has come up over and over for audiences, is that one particular anecdote about just wanting to do something as simple as put lotion on a person's hands, a very, uh, very basic need in a hospital or a care facility. But when it becomes you having to look over your shoulder to see if I'm being too intimate with somebody I've spent my life with, well, that, that really brings it home. I'm just smoothing lotion onto his hands and touching his skin. And as I touch his skin, you know, saying, I love you. The other thing about that couple is that Alexander had been a Harvard professor. And I was struck by the fact that this is happening in Boston. Even though it was 10 years ago, I think of Boston as probably the most progressive place, maybe other than San Francisco, in, in the country. Well, I think also what happens is that these communities that are thought of, that think of themselves as very liberal and affirming, often have a lot of blind spots. There's just an assumption. I certainly had the same assumption you had, and surprised that this is going on in a place that is considered so progressive and forward-thinking. And we found over the years that the communities where it's more of a challenge and there's going to be more pushback advance quickly and almost more so than in communities that are more liberal in addressing this issue. It's as if there is a small island of people in a, maybe a more conservative community that are willing to kind of push through any pushback, whereas it's kind of taken for granted in maybe more, more liberal, larger places. Part of what you do in this film is talk about how horrifying it was for people who were young in the 50s, when it was really impossible to be out of the closet. Let's hear a clip about what it was like at that point. There was something called the Midtown Journal, which was a terribly scurrilous rag in the city of Boston that they used to go out and they tried to target people who were gay. And he would get all the names of all the people who'd been, who'd been arrested that week in the bars and he'd put their names in the newspaper. Every week people would, you know, grab that paper to find out, you know, who had been outed. You know, it would destroy your life. Can you just talk about what it was like in the 50s and how that impacted how people were looking at maybe having to be put into care? You could lose your job, you could lose your family, you could be placed in psychiatric care. For women, they could lose their children. A court would almost automatically rule in favor of the husband if it could be proven that the woman was having a relationship with another woman. And this was up until, uh, I believe, the late 70s, even up through the 80s and later, and still in many places. Today, workplace protection is not insured, even though we've had a recent Supreme Court ruling affirming that. There's a lot of internalized terror, really. It still goes on. You know, we hear about this period in the 50s, that whole time when it was just 
very, very dangerous. And now at the end of life, being adaptable again in the ways that they've had to be their entire lives to survive growing old with care. So things have changed in a lot of ways, and sometimes they, they haven't. And the, the pendulum has swung back the other way, hasn't it? We thought when we did the interview with Mel Sims, who said I was didn't come out of the closet because I was worried about the pendulum swinging back against me, that that was an older person's internalized fear. Lo and behold, he was right. Here we are 10 years later, and the pendulum is swung back against many LGBT older people. The flip side is that even if we could encourage them, it's okay, it's okay. The provider network isn't comfortable and up to speed. 50% of nursing home staff reported that their colleagues would be intolerant of LGBT folks. And how do we measure whether somebody is comfortable? We may have people who say, I'm very comfortable. I'm very comfortable with those people. I'm proud that I'm working for the United Church Homes. And one of the first things I was told when I was applying for the job was that they had a very active support training program for sensitizing employees about LGBT. Well, you said the pendulum's swinging back, but in some of the places, are you seeing positive developments that have occurred over the last 10 years? Absolutely. There's a lot of progress that's been made and a lot of very affirming congregations that I would be very proud to be a part of. One of the stories you follow is Chris Ann, who's transgender, and she was abandoned by everybody in her family when she went through the transition. And she pretty much didn't have a support community. She also had cancer and was facing the problem of allowing people to come into her home. Let's listen to a clip about her. They need to at least accept me. It just won't work. I need people to do things for me. And I'm not, I won't be comfortable with someone that's not accepting of transgendered people. I'd rather not have it done. You'd rather not have the medical treatment or the care given to you? Anything. I see that on a weekly basis. They hold out longer than most people do to get that assistance because they think, like, I can still take care of myself until it's almost too late, until really there's a, a, either a health crisis or a medical, some sort of medical crisis or, or anything. There's just this isolation just festers. Tell me about how Chris Ann's caseworker saw that she was very isolated and needed support to remain in her home. She went to extraordinary lengths to help build a group of people to provide her care 24-7. So this was at the point when Chris Ann, uh, because of her lung cancer, was, I would say, nearing the end of her life. Maybe she had about six months left to live. And so she was heavily involved with her hospice care worker in developing a caregiving team. But because of her estrangement from her family, that wasn't a resource that she could really turn to. And that's very common no matter how you identify estrangement from family. But also, because she was kind of in a transition in her life beyond just her gender transition, just making a new set of friends, a small group of people kind of were motivated by this hospice care worker to kind of sign up for duty, to kind of help caregive with her on shifts for the limited time that she was still around. But it didn't solve all the problems. It actually created some. We go in that most protected space and that is frightening. Who's coming in? How are they going to feel about me? I mean, if you think about it, how many people out there really want to have a bunch of 
relative strangers come into their home, new friends, but not lifelong friends, and really do some of the, the, the really day-to-day -day caregiving that's required. She didn't. Uh, and I don't blame her. I think I would be in the same case. So I think it really brought home to me how important it is to develop those lifelong friendships. And as is often said, develop a caravan of support that carries you through your life and is there for you in the crunch. Her biggest fear was knowing that she was going to die and wanted to ensure that she was buried in the gender of her choice. That was an overriding fear for her. And also as a veteran being buried with her chosen name of Chris Ann, not her uh, given name at birth. Luckily, the VA was very, very helpful with that. They didn't bat an eye. Before we move on, are there other parts of the film you'd like to talk about? Yes, actually, you know, the film is 10 years old now. And one of the things that we're interested in doing is creating kind of an update maybe not opening up the film itself, but actually talking to people uh, at the end and, and including sections that talk about how the transgender experience has changed in the past decade, um, how LGBT aging has improved or what areas we still need to work on and what parts of the message still are the same. So we're looking forward to, to creating something that can be used as powerfully for the next decade. Let's close this discussion of Jen Silent with a clip from the film at a gay rights march and some comments from the characters in the film. The streets are lined with ordinary faces, ordinary people that you see every day. When I look to the left, when I look to the right, I see everybody. I see just kids, children. gay couples, straight couples. I am seeing cheering people really happy that we older LGBT citizens, that we're still here. I was marching and one of the thoughts that came into my mind was, I am so glad that I'm alive. It's made me feel proud about being a gay man and getting old. Your new film, Loneliness, I know in the work I'm doing with aging, loneliness is uh, epidemic and is deadly in some ways. Tell me about why you decided to choose this topic. Because it's deadly. I think that nobody really <laughs> realized just how serious of a health problem this is. You know. On a very spiritual level, it's just the right thing to do to address this. Um, but on a more practical level, there are health considerations that impact uh, our system of providing care for people. You can see it playing out right now with the COVID ep epidemic in residential settings. And we think that it's just an important moment to create a documentary that shows the stories of people who have faced it and are overcoming it and some of the solutions that we're finding out there as well. One of the things I've heard about the film, and I didn't know how big of a part of the film, it was that England has a Minister of Loneliness. Is that right? It is a cabinet level position that uh, includes uh, some other things in the portfolio, but they do help create a national plan 
to address loneliness, which looks like here's how we're going to address loneliness in the Department of Transportation. Here's how we're going to address loneliness in the FCC. I'm drawing equivalence to the United States. When they say a national plan, to read through it, it includes all departments. It's, it is an operating in a vacuum, and it's quite powerful to see. And, and also culturally, the way that the UK addresses certain parts on a things on a community level makes it more of an interesting shopping ground for ideas to take back here. Can you just share why loneliness is such a dangerous condition to face? The health implications, it's as bad as smoking a half pack of cigarettes a day, according to some research. The, it shows the, the huge economic impact. And it just shows also the, the toll it takes on our human soul, individually and collectively, as a civilization, as, as humanity. So I think exploring that is a very real, tangible thing. And at the beginning, I thought loneliness was a feeling. So it's a personal journey. Stu's new film will be titled All the Lonely People. If you are interested in how to access Gen Silent or to stay in touch with the release of the new film, you can go to theclowdergroup.com. That's T-H-E-C-L-O-W-D-E-R-G-R-O-U-P dot C-O-M. In our next episode, we'll be learning about a number of technologies that can make our lives easier, safer, and healthier as we grow old. This podcast was funded in part by the Dayton Foundation Del Mar Encore Fellows Initiative and the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, a program of United Church Homes. Audio production and interviews were conducted by Del Mar Fellow Eric Johnson.